Welcome to today's episode of the ASHA podcast. My name is Lauren Magar and I'm the Digital Communications Manager here at the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. Today we're going to be talking about bacterial vaginosis or BV. BV is a bacterial infection that occurs in the vagina that happens when the good bacteria in your vagina gets out of balance. BV is not a sexually transmitted infection, however, having sex with a new partner or multiple new partners can increase your risk. The most common treatment for BV is antibiotics, and there's even a new one-dose treatment available. BV is also incredibly common and very easy to treat. However, we find that a lot of women don't visit their healthcare provider when they suspect that they have BV. Today, we're going to explore why we think that is. We are joined today by Janelle Marie Pierce, who is the Executive Director of the STI Project. Thanks for joining us today, Janelle. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again. So you mentioned that you've had BV in the past, correct? Yes, that is correct. Many times. What made you suspect that you might have had it? Well, I didn't know right away. Um, it was, I was in my early 20s and would get recurrent uh, BV infections, and it would actually oscillate from BV to yeast and back and forth. So um, mostly at the time, there was an odor for me and um, uh, a little bit of itching. And so I, I'll, I'll, ultimately, I just decided that this is not my normal. This is not mm -hmm. how I'm used to seeing what my discharge is like. And it's not the smell that I'm used to. And um, so, but because I was not thrilled about, well, what could it be? Is it an STI? Is it curable? Is there something really wrong? Like it's embarrassing. I didn't go in right away. I kind of hoped it would just go away. And that happened many mm -hmm. times for me. It was like, I just didn't want to have to schedule the appointment and have them check it out. And like, it just felt so cumbersome and invasive. And um, yeah, so for me, it took a little bit, but then I, it, it ended up getting diagnosed by a provider. A lot of women say that they find it self-conscious the first time that they start experiencing some of those those symptoms, even though we know that BV is incredibly common um, and, you know, has nothing to do with hygiene, but, you know, most women actually report that they think that that, that there is something that they have done in terms of poor hygiene that could have prevented BV. So that's definitely a misconception that, that we see a lot that we think, you know, adds to that reluctance maybe to visit the, the provider. Oh yeah. There's so much shame especially around how our vagina, our vulva is supposed to smell. Mm -hmm. And there's just, you know, it's like the butt of all these jokes and it is laughed about. And there are all these um, metaphors and analogies that are associated with it, like fish and or associations, you know, animals and tuna and <laughs> things that aren't pleasant. And the thing is, it's like a vagina, your whole pussy, your vagina and vulva does have a smell in any and all of them do, and everyone, everyone's is a little bit different, but that's not abnormal or unhealthy, but we're kind of taught and believe that it should be flowers and roses, and um, it should smell like cupcakes, and if it doesn't, then something's wrong. If it doesn't just have a bodily smell, kind of like, like our armpits, our feet, our, even our skin has a smell to it, but there's so much shame around if there's any sort of detectable odor whatsoever, even just a normal smell of the vulva vagina area, the genitals, the female genitals, um, or I guess genitals that aren't necessarily specifically female, mm -hmm. but vulva vagina, 
Yeah, so there's there is. It's just like this pressure. And I and I even think it's the other way around oftentimes. Like and for me that was the case too. I, I wasn't douching at this time, but I've also worked with folks who have been using douches and then that ends up causing a an imbalance in the healthy the healthy flora. So it's almost the other way around folks who are doing too much because they're more paranoid or, or really trying to be they're adverse of any smell whatsoever and then they end up upsetting the healthy flora and so for me that's not what caused it but it's it's funny that you say that about hygiene because it's actually usually the opposite is really the case and that leads to this mental this mental um gymnastics that we end up doing when something gets off you know you start to feel like ew it's gross and is somebody else going to notice this and what are they going to think about me and like especially growing up through adolescence and into puberty women in general are so shamed and it's such a faux pas to like never have a period stain on your pants or, or i guess not women people with people with vaginas and vulvas never have a peanut or period stain never have anybody know that you're even using a tampon make sure to hide it in your purse and so we it starts from a very young age of where we feel shame about that area of our body and we feel like it should never be notice detectable there should be nothing ever going on with it and that's just not the case that's not the reality it's totally perfectly normal to have these imbalances and have these and have these things happen people will go so far to you know cover some of these things up and to try and sweep them under the rug that they will go to you know lengths such as a common one is uh inserting uh, whole garlic cloves into the vagina with the idea of trying to restore the balance. Um, you know, an another common one is to uh, freeze yogurt into a tampon applicator and insert it. And, and we know that these things are, you know, not effective, but I think it really highlights the extent at which people will go to when, you know, if, if you had a tooth infection, you would call your dentist um, and you would not think twice about that. I mean, obviously people don't love the dentist and you would have those same barriers in terms of costs and taking off work and those barriers that we have with, you know, accessing any healthcare, but you wouldn't have that. You wouldn't be trying to plug a, you know, a tooth with a clove of garlic. You would, um, you know, we don't see that same level of home remedies um yes oh and the home remedies and that's exactly it because it's like there's still of course the accessibility barriers and in the price and stuff and taking off work that's excellent because in, when i was in my early 20s and this was happening regularly and i had i had not necessarily well i'd had some multiple partners at that point in time and that also can impact that and we weren't using um, condoms because they were like either excuse exclusive like I was kind of a serial monogamous so I'd have like a long-term partner for a year or six months and then a new long-term partner for a year or six months and um, but even even the even somebody else's genital fluids can upset and cause an imbalance and I even noticed that specifically with one partner it like happened over and over and over again and our biology just didn't mesh is obviously what that ended up telling me is that that wasn't a match, at least in that way, unless I always wanted to utilize condoms mm -hmm. with that partner um, or, in, or um, internal or external condoms anyways. So, and that was something that we had chosen not to, and that was something we didn't want to do for our specific needs and safety concerns and what we were, what risks we were considering reducing. But anyhow, yeah, so you've got all the accessibility issues that are normal, but then there's also that level 
of there's again the shame but it's also too like talking to the provider and having to it feels so you feel so vulnerable and not all providers even handle that conversation in I think the most inclusive and empathetic way you know a specialist like an OBGYN would be wonderful um, someone at like a Planned Parenthood clinic um, like an actual clinic that deal, deals with sexual health regularly those have always been um, historically in my experience and anecdotally in the experience of the folks that I've worked alongside and helped um, they've all appreciated those providers a little bit better and felt like they offered um, a little bit more holistic and comprehensive services but I've had I've gone to like a general practitioner and felt like I was getting shamed through um, through having something be imbalanced and be on my sexual practices, whatever my my activity was, I just felt like that was like, well, you could reduce or you could have less sex or you could do this. And it's like, that's not helpful at the time because I need to get this fixed. And if you just say that with that implication, that doesn't change the behavior. We know research has said that that's not the way in which to change behavior or wish to help people you know, to be able to advocate for themselves. But so there's that level too. Like people are just worried. What are they going to think? What are they going to tell me? Or, you know, and there's just, there's so much pretense to this. Right. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, and something that I think you just touched on um, that's important is that we know that, you know, for a lot of people that, they find that they have a recurrence of more instances of BV when they are having uh, sexual relations with more multiple partners, but that isn't the case for all people. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of folks don't realize that the good providers, you know, because I mean, people are humans are humans, and you know, not everybody and even every practitioner is going to offer the best services, and you have to find you have to find the one that really you feel like is providing good and empathetic, comprehensive and inclusive care. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of advocating for yourself. And if you don't feel like you're getting good service going somewhere else, but not everybody feels empowered to do that. And especially at a younger age, I didn't even in my earlier twenties feel like I could say, well, I don't like what just happened. I want to either a different doctor in this, in this office, or I want to go to an entirely different office. You almost kind of feel like, well, you have to take whatever is being dealt to you because that's how everybody is going to handle it. And that's not necessarily mm -hmm. the case. So knowing that there are um, different ways of approaching and having that conversation. And it's a tough conversation because it's very personal, intimate information that not everybody is comfortable with or used to sharing with many people. And a lot of, I think, regular, regular everyday folks, you know, and I didn't even learn this until after I became a sexual health educator is that the reason why we're getting asked these questions, what type of sex we're having, whether we're having sex penetrative in the vagina, whether we're having penetrative in the anus, whether we're having oral sex, and those almost seem like, wow, do you really need to know the specifics? But there's an, there's intention behind it. There's a reason behind it because then they're going to do certain different types of tests or they're offering, um, different kind of preventative suggestions and solutions. And it really does, it is based on our, our, um, our genitals, our biology, what we're actually interacting with and with whom and how. And it's not so much a judgment, it's, it's just about how can we provide the best service? Where do, we where do we need to provide testing and all of that kind of thing. So if you know that going into it, um, but because most people at that age haven't had comprehensive exposure to comprehensive sexual health education, they don't realize that those questions are intentional, that they're geared to actually help 
that person and that individual and they're and geared to empower that individual, but they feel invasive and judgmental, even if they're not coming from that perspective. No, that definitely makes sense. So you, you talked about how um, someone might know that there's a different conversation they could have with a provider. They may have not had a positive experience going in and talking with them about it. Um, have you had an experience where you've gone in um, when you've suspected you've had BV where you have had a positive experience um, with a provider? And could you share a little bit about how that went uh, to, for someone who... Um, you know, might be kind of trying to, to see what that should look like? Yeah. So the, my best experience and example would be when I was accessing and utilizing Planned Parenthood services. Because this was happening in my early 20s, my income level was a lot lower. Um, and I don't even know if I had insurance actually at the time. I don't think I did because I was a waitress. So I'm pretty sure unless I was still under my parents' insurance, but I don't think I was anyways. So yeah, but I didn't, so my resources and availability was a lot lower and Planned Parenthood goes on an income scale. And so I had to go in kind of regularly because I would have, I would start with a BV infection, a bacterial vaginosis infection, and, and then have those symptoms. And then I'd go and get that treated. And then it, it can swing sometimes with treatment to a yeast infection. And the, the difference between the two really is just a, an imbalance in one healthy flora versus another. And so when you treat a BV infection, you're trying to reduce the amount of that specific pathogen, and then you may over reduce it, and then the other one overpopulates the right. yeast, the, the, the parasitic fungal, fungal infection. So anyhow, um, that's what was happening for me. It was swinging left to right over and over again, which is so miserable because first of all, the BV is smelly, then the yeast infection, you have all this excessive discharge and all of it, you just want your genitals to be normal. You know, you just feel like there's just something so gross and wrong with you and it's limiting and inhibiting your sexual practices, whatever that might be with whomever partners you have. So you just don't feel sexy. And yeah, all of those things, you know, there's a lot of mental, like I said, mental gymnastics you're doing. But when I went in to Planned Parenthood, that was when when I had the best services almost across the board in any sexual health services other than like a specialist in OBGYN. And they were just so empathetic. I mean, they, they emphasized over and over and over again, how much they see this, how often they see it, how it's not an indicator of specific, specific sexual health practices or behaviors. It's not an indicator of hygiene. It just sometimes, and that's where I learned, actually, they're the ones who taught me, now that I think about that, they're the ones who taught me that it might even be that specific partner mm -hmm. um, that because their just biology might be imbalancing mine and might not be as, as best of a match. Like they're just, that's how our bodies work. Kind of like certain people smell better than others and certain people smell you're sexually attracted to. I mean, there, that similarly works in terms of whether or not you're, and my partners were always people with penises. So, um, so we were having vaginal penetrative sex and, um, and like I said, without a condom. So that can increase the risk of like, of an offset in healthy flora if, if those um, genital fluids are interacting directly with one another. So, yeah, so for me, that was so, that was so uh, validating to know that like, okay, I'm not gross this isn't a bad thing. This is, it's, it's something that so many people deal with. And subsequently, after sharing that personally with some friends and things, I have so many people have told me that, oh my gosh, I mean, some of my friends have called it funny names, like 
so many people have dealt with it. And I just didn't know. You don't know because we're not talking about it. So it was so nice for, for them to let me know like I wasn't bad, basically. They were, they were really empathetic and, and down to earth. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it seems like reinforcing the idea of just how common it was and the fact that it had nothing to do with your hygiene practices or anything that you were doing to, you know, be unclean. That is really what for you made you realize that there wasn't anything to be ashamed or concerned about. So, you know, thinking going forward, how do we get more people to go and talk to their providers? It seems like those two points for you were something that, that really encouraged you um, to feel like you should, you would go in again. Is that yeah, I think the education that it's common and it's not something that, I mean, yeah, like you just said, that it's not something to deal with hygiene. It doesn't mean that um, you're you're immoral or, um, you know, there's no subjectivity to what whether the behavior is increasing or decreasing or it can, it can just happen to anyone and it doesn't matter how many partners you've had or what kind of sex you're engaging in. Like, it just depends. There's multi-factors that, um, that can then that can exacerbate the issue or make that occur anyways and cause the infection, cause the imbalance to occur. So knowing that, I also think there it's, I think this is kind of multi-level in which how do we encourage folks to go and seek treatment knowing that if it doesn't get treated, that there actually can be some long-term ramifications, I think is very important. Um, and not in a way of fear-mongering and a scare tactic of mm. trying to shame people or make them really nervous about the outcome, but because it's such an easily treated infection that's normal, that's not a new pathogen entering the system, that's just an imbalance of healthy flora, letting people know that and then knowing that it's so easily accessible, the treatment is there and they see it so commonly, so it's not unusual, they're not worried about the smell, and they're not worried about what they're seeing or, you know, any of that. I mean, it's just so very common when you're seeing a provider who, who deals with sexual health and sexual health issues all the time. So that's in, in the person's best interest to go and seek that care. But we're just, we're not told that. We're not empowered to say that this is super common. It's not, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be embarrassing. It's only culture that makes it, culture and media that make it embarrassing. Um, but really from the perspective of the provider themselves, I mean, they see it all the time. They, even, even for a smelly, because the BV, that's kind of hard. And that even caused a little bit of shame because it, for whatever reason, more, um, like a yeast infection causes more discharge and a specific kind of discharge, you know, it's thicker, um, and more white and kind of even sometimes has like a cottage cheese appearance for, and because I'd had both and I was going back and forth and oscillating between the two, trying to get the treatment right to the right amount and, um, and everything. And plus I was still having sex and had, and had a couple of partners at that time within this, like, few year period for whatever reason the bv was more embarrassing it's that smell it's the culture and the media around not having anything smell in the genitals and that was the hardest part and to know and let people know that genitals are supposed to smell all of them do and not in a bad way actually some of it's very sexy and very attractive and like and that's that's a normal that's a normal smell and then if it's abnormal for you that's when you want to seek seek care but there should be some sort of mild smell 
and everybody's is a little different and there's nothing wrong with that. And that is healthy and sexy and, you know, like helping women to not feel bad about that. Like they have to cover it up and turn their, and turn their vaginas into cupcakes and, and flowers. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's, it's definitely when you talk about the, the, the way we think about, you know, the yeast infection versus BV, we, we really don't hear people talking about BV in the same way that we do um, yeast infection. And, and like you mentioned with people's reluctance of going to their providers, not realizing that while BV is no big deal that it, you know, left untreated, it could be, um, you know, I, I think it was about half of uh, people didn't realize that left untreated BV uh, could lead you to be at a higher risk for um, conducting an STI. You know, they just, people don't realize that. And so it's without, you know, adding to any of that shame around that, just helping people know like there's there's no reason to increase that risk at all because this is no big deal. This is something that is incredibly common and is super easy to get treated. Um, and, you know, I think it's relatively an easy thing to do at your provider, a re relatively easy treatment. So why should we even open up that additional risk? Since, I mean, I think that that really hits back, going back to talking with your provider to make sure that you are finding the treatment that works best for you by providing them with all of the information about your lifestyle. Um, you know, I think almost circling back to what you said at the beginning, you know, they're asking these questions um, about, you know, are you having, are you having these not to create a judgment on, on your lifestyle, but so that they have the complete picture to provide the best healthcare for you. And I think that that goes into, um, you know, what type of medication ends up working best for you as well. So I think mm -hmm. that's important. Agreed. Agreed. Just letting people know that those questions, although they seem intrusive and they're personal and, you know, they probably have very rarely gotten asked them if ever by anyone, including an intimate partner, um, they're intentional and they're meant and geared to help and really provide the exact right treatment for that individual and their lifestyle and what is going to suit them and their body best. But um, we don't always know that. We're just not always taught that because we don't have access to comprehensive sexual health education. And so we don't, we don't get encouraged and told that these are just normal conversations that, ha that happen and that need to happen as a part of our sexual health. Exactly. Um, and even, I think, creating a, a nice scenario in practice when we're talking about comprehensive sex ed about how we talk about these things with providers, giving language of saying, you know, like there's a smell and I have a smell in my genitals in my genital area, or specifically I have a smell in my vulva area that is not usual for me. And you just mm -hmm. say, there's a smell that's not usual for me. And it's that simple. And that leads the provider right away to thinking there must be an imbalance. There's either another kind of infection or there might be a BB infection, which is just the imbalance of healthy flora. So um, just even practicing that language and it can be a simple conversation because it's hard for even people to say like, I've got a smell down there or, mm -hmm. you know, my, I have a J or something. And, and, you know, we're using funny words and we're, you know, you kind of say it in this way of like, you almost don't want to admit to that because it feels so embarrassing when it really shouldn't be an embarrassing thing. It doesn't have to be, but it's just how we've created that narrative around it. Well, and remembering that for the provider, you know, this is what they do every day, you know, why this might be something that this is the first time you are experiencing 
um, these symptoms, this is something that they, they experience or they see maybe multiple times a day, if not, you know, multiple times a week for, for years. And so for them, they're not concerned. This is, you know, part of their routine job. They are not concerned, you know, they are, they are not passing judgment. And if you feel that way, then that is not the right provider for you. So having to kind of remember that, that for them, they are just thinking, you know, here is a condition that I can easily diagnose, that I can prescribe a easy treatment for and get this person on the way, on their way, you know, and, and hopefully prevent, you know, further things down the road. So I think that's really important. I think especially when we start talking about anything with a vagina's genitals, that rem- remembering that, that for them, it is just, um, you know, part Every of. Every day. Right. It is, yeah. It's, they, it's for them. It's like the weather. It's as boring as talking about the weather, you know, <laughs> like it is just a non-issue and knowing that I think it's helpful because it feels like you feel alone because you don't feel like you can talk about it. You don't feel like you can say to somebody like, I smell bad. You don't want, nobody really wants anyone to be smelling them in a way that's offensive or, Mm -hmm. you know, not complimentary. And so, and that's overall with all of our bodily functions, you know, like we wear deodorant because we don't want our armpits to stink too much. And um, we wash our socks regularly because your feet can start to smell and, you know, and that can be a fungal infection. I mean, we do things so that we, our hygiene is our, our overall appearance in terms of smell in particular. Smell is such a strong one too. And that, you know, I didn't even think about that until now. So I'm thinking out loud, but the smell, smell is related to our earliest memories. Smell triggers us in, in trauma as well as pleasure. And and so smell is actually a very key component of sexual pleasure and arousal. Um, One of the biggest senses that actually is incorporated in our sexual arousal. So I think really smell in and of itself, the fact that this part of the symptom is a smell and because smell is so primarily important in, in like in in um and so primary in our in our perception of the world and people around us and our interaction and stuff like that, I think that also adds an a very instinctual basal layer that we have to start to erode and like add normalcy to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about. So kind of continuing on how that can impact relationships, did you find that that was a difficult conversation to have with uh, any of your partners uh, when you had BV? You know, surprisingly enough, I had not had an experience where a partner was nervous about the symptoms that I was having. But I, at the time too, because I had already had genital herpes and my partners were aware of that because I contracted genital herpes when I was 16. So this was, you know, a BV experience was on top of already having a long-term or full forever infection. So I think because those were the partners that I had and they were already open um, and pretty, they, their my disclosure to them was really positive and their reaction and response and our subsequent, you know, continuing to be together and, um, and get intimate with one another in a, in a physical way. That all kind of, I think, laid the groundwork for they were already going to be relatively um, open and understanding that, you know, the female body is complex and a lot of things happen and our whole, our whole bodies are complex and not necessarily female or male, non-binary, but um, yeah, so I didn't have that experience, but I have had anecdotally a couple of friends and a couple of folks that I've worked, worked with now with the STI project 
who have had negative experiences via something that was a smell, a very strong smell, whether it was their own natural biology that the, the partner just didn't love and or whether it was a result, a result of an infection like BV. So that definitely can happen. And I think that adds an additional layer of like, what is this person going to think? They're going to think I've cheated. And BV is not a result, um, is not an external pathogen. It's, it's just an imbalance of what's already in the body. So and that gets misunderstood a lot, as well as yeast, but BV in particular, because BV can't be transmitted um, to another partner. It's, so it's only in the vagina, and that's only an imbalance that happens in the vagina. So yeah, that in and of itself, even just that information, knowing that this is not a sexually transmitted infection, not that there's anything wrong with that, of course, because that's the work that I primarily do, but there's so much fear around that. And then, you know, the partner's wondering what might've happened and, and it really could be as a result of, of, of sex with that individual. So it has nothing to do with whether the person has stepped out or been involved in, yeah. you know, a different kind of relationship or different kinds of activities. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much. And thank you again for joining us. This has been wonderful and, and super insightful. We, we really appreciated it. Janelle, where can people find you and the work that you're doing with the STI project? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the STI project is a website. So it's the STIproject.com. And then I'm on all social media channels and it's at the STI project. So anywhere that you do social, I am available even on TikTok. I've recently branched out into TikTok too. So I'm the STI project. Come, come, come chit chat, come say hi and all my content is about living with an STI and um, sexual health and safer sex and, and working through that and those diagnoses. So come and see what I have to say and I'm happy to help. Janelle, thank you again for joining us today. This has been wonderful. We so appreciate you doing this and thank you to everyone who's listened to the episode of the podcast today. We appreciate you taking the time to do that as well. Um, you can listen to other episodes of the podcast and also learn more about BV and um, other sexual health topics at www.ashasexualhealth.org. Thanks and have a wonderful day.